Thistle's phone chimes. She glances at the screen. Mr. Burns says the housekeeper's alibi checks out. The other agents all got nothing so far. It's like the kid just vanished. Maybe we should check if he's at Area 51, I say. Area 51 is an urban legend, Thistle says, apparently not aware that I was kidding. Like Slender Man or the guy who eats death row inmates. I choke on my coffee. You okay? Thistle asks. Yeah, I say, but my heart is racing. What did you say? Area 51. It exists, but it's just a normal Air Force base. They test new planes there. Not that part, the death row thing. Thistle flashes a wicked smile. Oh, you haven't heard that one? The government struck a bargain with a cannibal, and they use him to dispose of bodies after executions. Who told you that story? I ask, trying to sound casual. The supermax prisoners use it to scare each other up in Huntsville. Better watch your step or a man from the government will come eat you. She shrugs. Doesn't make much sense, but conspiracy theories never do. Right. It's probably bullshit. Thistle laughs. Probably? Definitely bullshit, I clarify. Then I take another bite out of Nigel Boyd's thigh. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Canberra writer Jack Heath reading from his first novel for adults, Hangman. It's a crime thriller book featuring a consultant for the FBI called Timothy Blake, a genius with a very particular palette. The sequel to Hangman, Hunter, is out now and Jack is joining me to chat about the series. Hi Jack, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I apologise for the clumsy accent. Oh, not at all. I was, I was thinking, like, when this interview starts, people are going to be so confused that they're not hearing a Texan accent all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds very real in my head. I can't get it to work quite as well when it's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I was very convinced. <laughs> so, um, so you were first published as a teenager, and you say that you started writing because the young adult books you were finding or being given at the time were rather underwhelming. What about those books failed to impress you? Yeah, it's funny because in retrospect, I think they were probably really good books. It's just that everything we seem to be reading in school, the main character was either dealing with their, their parents' divorce or they had a, a sibling with cancer or they had an eating disorder to overcome or in some cases all of the above and at the time I loved books but I also loved video games so I would go home and, and play Metal Gear Solid or something and then go why can't books be more like this why, why can't there be more sort of spy um, action explosion stuff in it so I started writing my own book because I think probably most people start their careers um, whatever it is, thinking, oh, how hard could this be? I could do better than that. And then they start doing it and then realize that it's really hard. But um, but fortunately, what I was doing was uh, different enough from what was out there, but still had enough of, of market appeal that, that a publisher was was willing to pick it up. Um, so yeah, it was I, I got a huge huge stroke of luck very early on and I've been capitalizing on it ever since. Yeah. Um, so what actually was that first book, that, oh. your answer to these lackluster books you were finding? Yeah. So the, the book was called The Lab. Um, it's still in print, which is no mean feat for a YA book from 2006. Looking back, there's a whole bunch of things um, that I would do differently. I think if I wrote it a second time, but it is really um, touching, I guess, that nowadays a lot of adults come up to me to say that they've really enjoyed 
enjoyed Hangman or Hunter, but then they add that they loved the lab as a kid. And I go, well, you're a grown man. <laughs> you're not supposed to be saying that you read my books as a child. That makes me feel old. Well, I'm so sorry to say that I'm definitely one of those people that read the lab. Oh, um, my I think goodness. I was, okay. I was in year six or seven and it helped me through <laughs> a particularly horrible, dreary summer road trip. So <laughs> okay. glad I could help. Yeah. It uh, helped me through some horrible year seven, eight, nine and ten. Yeah. <laughs> I was basically writing it the whole way through my teenage years. So yeah. it, it's funny that um, regardless of, of what you think of the finished product, I think writing is valuable even if no one's reading because it helps you get um, sometimes what's in your head shouldn't stay in your head. It needs to get out, but sometimes you also don't want to infect anybody else with it or there's things that you don't want to talk about in polite society, but if you can get them out onto the page, then that makes you feel a little happier and a little healthier even if that page uh, never sees the light of day. And it's particularly true of Hangman and Hunter. Like there's all sorts of monstrous stuff that happens in these books. They are noir, they are crime and, and, and they're well, the main character eats people, so yeah. it's pretty ugly. But I couldn't keep all that bottled up inside my head. I'd, yeah. I'd go crazy. So I'm uh, I'm just relieved that other people seem to be just as messed up as me and they enjoy reading the books and, and I get to keep writing them. Yeah, well, we'll definitely get into all of that monstrous stuff. Um, but I was curious, were there any books that you remember actually cutting through when you were sort of a young teenager that you still remember to this day that you really loved and made an impression on you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I read when I was... Was uh, 13 or 14, almost certainly too young to be reading this. Uh, I read a book called The Second Trip by Robert Silverberg, where the main character. Uh, here's the pitch <laughs> basically it's set in the future where prisons are so overcrowded that instead of uh, imprisoning people for life sentences they just erase their personalities give them a new personality and release them back out onto the street with a badge that says like hey if you recognize me I'm not actually me anymore go away and so the main character is one of those newly born kind of people um, and he used to be a very famous artist uh, but then his personality was erased, so now he's a new person. But he comes across the ex-girlfriend of the guy he used to be who happens to be a psychic and who kind of reawakens the monster within him. And so that was... It made an impression and it sparked a love of Robert Silverberg for me, so I, I started reading a bunch of his other stuff. But while I was writing my own sci-fi manuscript, which I, I had told myself as a 13 or 14-year-old that I had invented the idea of the action thriller. Like, surely no one else had thought of this. And then my dad gave me a copy of Ice Station by Matthew Riley, and I was like, okay, not only does, does the genre exist, but Matthew Riley was doing it much better than I was, so I had to pick up my game a little bit. But I also read a ton of Emily Rodder books, um, in particular the the Raven Hill Mysteries, or as they were known back then, uh, the, the Teen Power Inc. series. So that was kind of my first foray into crime fiction, or if not that, mystery fiction. You know, you, you set up the cast, you plant the clues, you make sure every clue looks like it's pointing to something different to what it actually is, and then at the end all is revealed and... Um, I picked up those because the first one was called The Ghost of Raven Hill and I've always loved ghost stories but spoiler warning there's no ghost oh come on <laughs> false advertising yeah yeah it's Emily a Scooby-Doo type thing oh okay yep. so yeah so you've now written over 20 thriller novels for young people probably closer to 30 now um Hunter is my 29th okay so, cool yeah yeah my, my next one will be my 30th I'm gonna have a bit of a celebration I think although I haven't decided what form it will take yeah, hopefully a big one. That's amazing. Well, I nearly quit after about 10. Oh. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad I stuck with it. 
Yeah. Um, so these books are packed with things like deadly viruses, giant mosquitoes, terrifying monster squids, and man-eating plants. I'm sure you know as the children's author better than anyone that kids can be just as discerning and critical as adult readers. Mm. How do you go about taking these really imaginative stories and making them convincing? Yeah, it's tricky. There are a few different things that you can use. So I I learned pretty early on that it doesn't matter how realistic or unrealistic something is. What matters is, as you say, how convincing it is. So one of the things that you can do is you can make it outrageous and then dial it back a little bit rather than pushing the other way. So like if I told you that... Um, uh, you know, bacteria had just been discovered on Mars, then you might be a little bit um, suspicious. <laughs> uh, but if I told you, did you know that aliens have just been found and you'd be even more suspicious, but then I say, don't get too excited, it was actually just bacteria, then you'd believe me 100%, even though what I've just said isn't, like, even though if I'd started with what it actually was. So, yeah, that, that's one of the things that I do. But another thing I've found is that uh, if I show my work to a really diverse range of people, um, the dirty secret about publishing is that every book is a team effort. Like, there's there's only one name on the cover usually, and uh, there's the myth of the lone genius toiling away in his or her study, and, um, and that's a myth perpetuated by writers who want to sell books. <laughs> so you're like, yes, I'm a genius therefore my book is a work of genius therefore you should buy it for all your friends but in truth there's always a lot of people who work on any given book and that's essential because each person that I show my drafts to has a different life experience to me so um, even when I'm writing for kids it's important to show my work to a range of people who can say oh this bit didn't ring true for me or that's not true or, um, Jack, that's not how blood works. <laughs> I have friends who are doctors and computer scientists and some who, who work in sort of secret jobs that I can't talk about on a podcast. Wow. And each of them makes different criticisms of my work. So based on that, I know when I'm pushing too far, basically. What was the moment where you brought an idea to your publisher or mentioned it to someone close to you where you were the most worried that they were just going to be like, what the hell are you thinking? Um, <laughs> hangman, basically. There you go, yeah, I thought yeah, that might yeah. be the answer. And that was, so I I wrote Hangman, which, which was my first novel with Timothy Blake, the cannibal detective, um, and I presented it to my wife who loved it and my agent who loved it and she showed it to a range of publishers who all hated it. <laughs> and rightly so, in retrospect, respect that first draft was was not good and I didn't it's a pretty ambitious book if it's okay for me to say that and my writing skill was not there yet so I I had ideas above my station I guess um and then over the course of writing a whole bunch more books for kids while also editing Hangman in the background, eventually my um, I leveled up my skills a little bit and I found a, uh, a publisher, um, Jane Palfreyman and Alan Unwin, who was as insane as I and my agent and my wife are. <laughs> and she went, yeah, we'll publish this. <laughs> and I think everyone thought she was a bit nuts too, but then it did like better than anyone expected it to. So now I get to write a whole series of cannibal detective books, hopefully. But yeah, that was the one where 
I'm always trying to shock people, I guess, but I don't want to shock people beyond what can be published and what people can enjoy. So uh, Hangman was was the most outrageous, I guess, idea that I've had so far. Yeah, because you actually started writing Hangman in 2008. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I started the first draft in 2008 and I took a research trip to Houston, Texas in 2010. Um, and then there was kind of eight years of editing at slash leaving it in a bottom drawer because I, I because... I had told myself that no one would ever publish it and it was a stupid idea for me to write it in the first place and what was I thinking? And then uh, January 2008 was when it was published. So almost exactly 10 years after I started. Yeah, what sort of research did you have to do in Houston when you were there? Well, um, basically I just wanted to kind of have a look around. I was really interested in the language and the lingo. Um, and what I discovered was that there are as many accents in Texas as there are people in Texas. So my kind of howdy y'all vision of, <laughs> of what Texas was like was uh, was way off. So that was worthwhile. But the I stayed with um, family friends. Well, my my wife's cousin's husband's parents. So people I'd never met and who were not directly related to me, but who were gracious enough with their southern hospitality to to put me up in their home for a while and one of them turned out to be an ex-detective from the houston pd which i hadn't realized when i went over there and his wife was a former 911 dispatch operator so they were just full of gruesome stories i didn't uh, my research basically involved just like sitting around listening to them talk about their days in the police force and i got them to drive me out to huntsville prison i couldn't go in but i could have a look around the outsides and see all the guards cradling semi-automatic rifles standing on the top and i went to the texas prison museum which was uh, an interesting experience too i was interested in listening to recordings of people who had had the job of administering lethal injections all of whom were in favor of the death penalty but it still haunted them having been the person who had to had to actually do it. I found that really interesting and a lot of that flowed through into what became Hangman. So I think people listening to this who haven't necessarily read Hangman or Hunter would have ascertained that uh, Timothy Blake is indeed a cannibal. Yes. What else is he? Tell that me about secret's Timothy out of the bag. Blake. <laughs> okay, Timothy Blake. So civilian consultant for the FBI, uh, orphaned, um, grew up in a, a group home, um, so pretty pretty rough background, um, but having been raised in this sort of desperate, um, violent environment, he became extremely observant and resourceful and cunning. So he grows up um, on the one hand with this predilection for human flesh, but on the one on the other hand with this amazing mind. But he's also um, I didn't want him to be a psychopath like uh, like Hannibal Lecter or, or Dexter Morgan or any anybody like that. I thought what was going to be interesting about the book was that he would love to be a good person and he knows that he's not, but just doesn't have the willpower or self-control to, to change himself. I think that's what readers embraced really with him um, because in both Hangman and Hunter there are plenty of opportunities for him to do the right thing. And on the one hand, he very rarely takes them. But on the other hand, he he always is ashamed and guilty about not having done that. So, And I think while uh, very few of your listeners are cannibals, I would hope, um, all of them will have... Um, will have those things that they've done that kind of wake them up in the middle of the night and when they go, oh, A, I shouldn't have done that, and B, am I a bad person? If so, no one must ever know. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's what people empathise with, with. Yeah, 
Because I was going to ask, because one of the things that you read often in a review or you might hear someone say in a book club meeting or something, one of the most common critiques, and I personally think it's quite a lazy critique, but you do hear mm. it quite a lot, people say that they didn't find the character or characters likeable. Yeah. So were you particularly um, wary of making Timothy Blake at least a little bit palatable for the reader, let's say? Yeah, he was kind of a creative writing challenge to myself. I wanted to, I was asking myself what the most repulsive character I could create was and then still get the reader to, if not like, then at least forgive him because I'd kind of had this epiphany that the things that make a reader like a character have nothing to do with how ethical the character actually is. Um, So, for example, we... We like a character who has a skill. Um, We like a character who uh, performs a good deed even if they do it for the wrong reasons. We like a character who feels guilt about their actions even if they keep doing terrible actions and a bunch of other things. So I thought, how far could I push this? Like how... um, So the process of writing Hangman and Hunter was just walking a tightrope, like going, okay, I need the reader to still be on board with him, but I need them to be uncomfortable about the fact that they are still on board with him. So with Hunter, um, I decided to kind of write it backwards. With Hangman, he uh, Timothy Blake escalates over the course of the novel. Uh, with Hunter, um, chapter two, I think, he finds a, a naked man dead in the woods and he has no clue how the guy got there, but he can't resist taking a single bite. And that action... Um, I figured, okay, so it's chapter two. Any of the readers who are, uh, they're going to read that moment and then in that moment they're going to decide whether this is their kind of book or not. And that meant that for the rest of the book I was able to have the consequences of that action spiral out of control and ruin the lives of all these people. But it meant that I didn't have to worry about losing the readers so much because if they made it to the end of chapter two then they'd be in it until however many chapters the book has. They were in it for the, for the duration. Yeah. So you've said that you designed Blake's character to shake the reader's ethical foundations. Yes. So what sort of moral and ethical questions come about when you're writing a character who's a cannibal? Well, um, for one thing, uh, is cannibalism all that bad? <laughs> um, I picked it deliberately because it's it's a taboo, so it's something people feel squeamish about. Um, but in this world when... 800 million people are starving and when uh, in western countries corpses are fatter than ever before (laughs) and I'm not talking about murder for the record just eating people and I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek here because it's something that I would obviously never do but since it is something that is so far outside the realm of anyone's actual experience it forces us to confront uh, the idea that a is there is there anyone out there who's unforgivable like is there a crime so bad that the appropriate amount of, of remorse won't won't make it right. But also, it, there's this uh, ethical conundrum of, okay, it, is something wrong just because you're squeamish about it? Uh, so, because a lot of people would say, you know, no, I can't do that, that's wrong, and they feel a moment of disgust with whatever it is. But you need to bear in mind that, for example, that's how some people feel about, uh, you know, interracial marriages. Like, they feel that same moment of revulsion or disgust, and that doesn't mean that's wrong. Like, it's something we have to confront in ourselves, the fact that we will sometimes be disgusted by someone else's choices and, and still have to... Uh, let them do it and there's a whole separate thing about eating meat I mean Blake specifically in Hunter uh, talks about how um, so yes he eats people uh, but pigs 
you know, feel grief <laughs> and or cows grieve when their calves are taken away to make milk and, you know, pigs get stressed and like uh, animals feel all these. So it's not a book about vegetarianism. I was going to say, are you that, admitting that Hangman is like covert vegan propaganda? Well, <laughs> I would love for it to be, except that I'm not like a real vegetarian. Like I, I'm aware of all the ethical and environmental arguments that I should be, but I still walk past like um, the sausage sizzle outside Bunnings and go, oh, I, I've got to have one of those. <laughs> so um, that's the other thing I wanted to explore, that the distance between the kind of person I am or that a reader is and the kind of person that they wish they were. Like I wish I was someone who didn't bite my nails and I wish I was someone who... You see all these diet books out that explain you know, what you've got to do is eat exactly this amount of this but none of that. And there's that whole sort of secret that's not really a secret that if you eat lots of vegetables and get lots of exercise, you'll probably be pretty healthy. All of us know that. None of us do it. It's like the difference there. So... That was kind of what I was trying to pick apart in both these stories. But ultimately, I'm aware that um, I'm a thriller writer. So uh, a lot of that stuff got left on the cutting room floor to make room for just an exciting story. And what I like most about Blake isn't necessarily just his ability to make readers uncomfortable. It's the freedom of writing about a person who can do such horrible things. So uh, when I'm writing children's fiction... Uh, with each moment in each stage of each scene, I'm thinking, okay, what uh, what would make an in- entertaining story? And B, what would be the right thing to do? Whereas with Blake, I can only worry about A. He can do whatever makes the story exciting without having to worry about... I don't have to feel like I'm a bad influence on the reader. They're adults now. They, they've made their own choices. Yeah, it's not your problem if uh, they go a bit wild after reading and, and get start some strange ideas. eating people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, why did I say that on there? <laughs> uh, would you mind being eaten? Uh, if, assuming I was already dead? Yes. No, that's okay. Yeah, yeah I, I figure that's... It seems very weird and wasteful that human beings can, like have to be outside the food chain or something like that. Like when, so when we die, it's not even like we get buried for the worms to eat. It's like no, no, no. I want to be pumped full of chemicals and then turned into toxic ash, so nothing can ever gain any form of nutrition from me ever again. Um, so no, I figure uh, there's a lot of hungry people and animals in the world. If my body's gone and you know, no, I'm not using it anymore. People can do whatever they want with it. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's kind of instinctually so creepy to think about that. But then there's also something sort of comforting about like if you came to nourish some like, I don't know, litter of baby foxes or crows or something. Yeah, like... sort of the the circle of life, as yeah. Mufasa would once have said. And it's weird because I'm I'm writing this kind of book because when I started Hangman, zombies were very much in vogue and very much in my mind. Like I, I was obsessed with the Resident Evil novels as a kid and then the games. Hey, novels? And, well, there were novels that were written based on the games so i used to really like those but i also used to have recurring nightmares about just running away from a horde of people who wanted to eat me and as we were saying just a minute ago sometimes getting something i stopped having the nightmares after i started writing hangman you know because it was out of my head and onto the page and the idea of instead of writing about 
how horrifying it would be to be eaten, writing about the person doing the eating instead means you're kind of taking charge of that fear. You're taking control. And now that I'm saying this out loud, I realise I have all sorts of fears and phobias, so I just need to <laughs> to write a novel about each of them and then I'll be fearless and, uh, <laughs> and everything will be fine. I can sleep again. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Writing is therapy. I've heard that from quite a few authors. So totally. I'm just very, very lucky that, uh, that my books... Um, that enough other people enjoy reading my books, I guess, that I can afford to write full time because, frankly, I need a lot of therapy. So <laughs> if I can do my writing therapy for like 40 or 50 hours a week, then that's fantastic. That'll, yeah. that'll put me in a good place. It's the perfect business model. I love exactly. it. Um, while we're sort of on very strange uh, moral conversations, last time we spoke with you, you said that this book called Would You Eat Your Cat was quite mm. a stimulating book and i actually have this book as well and it's just really it good it's yeah so it's like this really awesome book of just these strange hypothetical ethical conundrums basically do you remember any of the conundrums from that book that you tangled with i do there was a, a really good one about um an agent bames john or something like that <laughs> who had to fight dr evil or whatever the 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 dr evil evil character had a button that would end the world but immediately so no one would know it was coming no one would suffer just wink of an eye um, everyone just ceases to exist and james bond or bames john or whatever his name was his only option was to try to talk the guy out of it uh but the moral conundrum at the heart of it was the the dr evil character wanted to eliminate all suffering and he could do that by eliminating all people um, and the the secret agent had to convince him that that life was worthwhile even via suffering. But what was interesting tangling with this is it it was a great um, uh, examination of euthanasia without using the word because euthanasia is is the the clearest example of our two competing moral obligations: one to preserve life, the other to reduce suffering. Right? Those those are both things we agree are good. Um, but eventually we get in a situation where we have to prioritise them. But the other comes with, like, okay, if reducing suffering is more important than preserving life, then um, that has that solves the euthanasia conundrum but, but comes up at the other end with sort of the conception end. You, you can go, okay, if you, if you measure the life of, of a person, if it's likely to have more suffering than joy in it, are we obliged to... Um, terminate the pregnancy if there's some genetic condition that it has that that says that they're likely to suffer from depression or or um, have some kind of um, horrible uh, disfigurement or, or a, a test for early onset bone cancer or something like that. So yeah, there's uh, one of the things that I really like about fiction is that you can explore these issues without anyone getting angry at you. Like if I stood up on stage and um, said, you know, I'm here to argue about whether euthanasia is good or bad, then half the audience would be angry at me before I started and possibly the whole audience. Um, but if I write a novel about whether our obligation to preserve life and or if it's about Dr. Evil about to push the button and James Bond having to talk him out of it, then people are facing the same conundrum but um, their, their sort of tribal reasoning is bypassed. The fiction can get to the truth without aggra aggravating our impulse to, to be on the same side as all our friends, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, please tell me if I start talking nonsense, by the way. I have a no, very not at all. pregnant wife and I'm not getting a lot of sleep. <laughs> no, this is all fabulous so far. Don't worry about it. Uh, do you think Timothy Blake would have a good chance of talking Dr. Evil down from the button or would he just convince him to press it? Oh, I don't know. He's very manipulative. But and he's an accomplished liar. <laughs> uh, but as far as convincing him to to press it goes, I think Timothy Blake is a pretty nihilistic character. Um, he he has this kind of um, he's already gone so far and done so many terrible things that I think other people's problems and in fact other people's joys strike him as petty and insignificant so that may make him seem like a pretty repulsive character but when agent reese thistle comes along uh someone who's had the same kind of ugly background that he has but has gone the other way and turned into an an upstanding moral upright citizen and he falls in love with her uh suddenly that that puts cracks in his nihilistic facade and you're not quite sure what's underneath. So I originally planned for Hangman and Hunter to be kind of like the Jack Reacher novels where every um, it would be the same main character every time, but you'd have different uh, a completely different cast around him. So as I could write 40 or 50 or 60 cannibal detective novels. Uh, but then I realised a couple of things. And one is that everything that happens to Blake and everything he does leaves a scar um so he and and physical or psychological or or sometimes both so he does actually change uh so i'm not sure that would work necessarily and the other is that a book with blake in it without agent reese thistle i'm not sure how well that would work because she brings out the best in him and it's that best in him that the reader is really latching onto so um i think he would push the button unless uh, he knew that Thistle existed and was still a part of the world and then he would never cross that line. Oh, that's I don't quite think. romantic. Yeah. <laughs> the, the dirty little secret <laughs> about, uh, about me and my books is that I'm secretly a romance writer, but no one notices because <laughs> of all the cannibalism. <laughs> it's a love story. It's Romeo and Juliet, but Romeo wants to eat Juliet. No, it's, uh, it's Twilight, but Bella doesn't know that Edward is a vampire. It's... Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> I think you've also described these books as uh, just like a Lee child, except the main character just wants to eat everyone. So, yeah. yeah. It's funny because Jack Reacher is actually... I, I'm a fan of Lee Child, so I hope he wouldn't mind me saying this, but Jack Reacher is actually a less ethical person than Timothy Blake. Like, the people Blake eats are dead already. He's not the one who killed them. They were not killed in order to be fed to him. Um, he just kind of takes what's not needed anymore. Whereas Jack Reacher has a body count of 70 or 80 people by my count, most of whom were murdered, uh, some in self-defense. But uh, as happens in almost every book, Jack Reacher says, you got to get your retaliation in first and then just murders someone who looked at him sideways. So I think um, it's funny how it's that squeamishness thing again. So people are, people are squeamish about Timothy Blake because he eats people but um, we embrace uh, the Jack Reacher character as this kind of... Um, no one ever makes this comparison, but Jack Reacher's a bit like Doctor Who. He has this kind of... He blows into a strange town where something's going on. He has some, some information in his backstory because he's led such an interesting life that he can spot what's going on and then sol- solve the problem in Doctor Who's case by saving everyone and Jack Reacher's case by murdering everyone. And then he leaves again. So we're quite comfortable with that archetype. Whereas a character like Timothy Blake, who's sort of a net benefit to society because he solves these crimes and he saves these lives and he's brilliant and amazing, but also 
deeply, deeply disturbed and dangerously insane, we're not as comfortable with that, I don't think. So that's what makes him interesting to write about. Yeah, okay. Jack Reacher, less moral than a cannibal. Shots fired <laughs> to Lee Child. Okay. <laughs> um, on I love you, Lee. No <laughs> offense meant. It's too late. The shots are fired. Yeah. Um, so on Blake's character, he is a genius, which is why he's hired by the FBI to help out on cases as a last resort. And yeah. what I really loved about reading uh, Hangman is that um, there's a few parts where he's walking in and analyzing, you know, a scene or um, memorizing something. And you actually sort of go into his brain processes and into how that analysis or that memorization works. Like you actually sort of reveal some of his tricks, I guess. Yeah. Did you do any research into how people with extraordinary memories like that uh, operate? I did. So the first thing that I read was an article somewhere about how photographic memory may not actually exist. Like that it might be something that that is sort of made up by Hollywood and the people who, who claim to have it don't really have it. And I was like interested in that because at that stage I knew that Blake had to be brilliant, but I wasn't sure exactly how uh, and what abilities he was going to have. Um, so then I read a wonderful book by Darren Brown, of all people, called Tricks of the Mind, which is the closest I think Darren Brown's ever written to an autobiography. And it's an interesting book for lots of reasons. It's very funny, very entertaining. But there was a chapter on memorization techniques that struck me as really interesting. Do you actually remember any of the things that you use those memory techniques on or were they not quite that good? <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember some of Darren Brown's examples, actually. Yeah. It's this weird thing where... Uh, so he had a story involving... Um, having to remember someone's hotel room number and uh, and imagining a, a that a person had a doormat under their nose instead of a moustache because the the room number translated to uh, nose mat or N S M T, which an N was two because there's two downward strokes on an M and then. Uh, S or Z are both zero because there's this kind of Z or S sound at the beginning of it and then three downward strokes on an M so it was two, zero, three and then a T so that's a seven because they look similar. So there's this weird thing where now I know forever the hotel room of someone I've never met <laughs> um, just because it was in this book, but like 203T, that could follow me around for years. So when I read that and realised how much it's not just that we have so much uh brain space that is impressive it's how often turning something into a story or a memorable image or sensation burns it into your brain in a way that's very difficult to scrub off later so that's not useful information for me to have that that room number but the fact that you need to construct a mental image to um to make that work gave me lots of opportunities to show how disturbed Blake was like that initial image of him um shaving uh, of him imagining his boss shaving off his own flesh to reveal the bone just so as he could remember the guy's social security number that kind of thing um and I also have in my head somewhere uh, a list of I have a mental image of myself kind of squashing uh, squashing a cabbage with my bare feet with some butter in it. And I've never done that. But at some point, it means I needed to go to the shops to buy butter and cabbage. And like, but again, you can't erase this stuff. <laughs> that's like there forever. So that's the other reason you don't use it for shopping lists. Because once <laughs> you've done the shopping, you don't want the metal image there anymore. 
But uh, anyway, so the to long-windedly answer your question, I'm not Timothy Blake, and I don't uh, I don't use the techniques that he does most of the time. But I do kind of have a, a nihilistic streak. So whenever I find myself kind of looking at the world in in this very uncharitable like look at all these happy people caring about these things that don't matter kind of way. I, I go home and I pour all that into the Blake manuscript that I'm working on and, and then I have a much cheerier disposition. So again, writing as therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's the actual main crime in Hangman that Blake <clears throat> is using these techniques to solve? Oh, so in Hangman, uh, Blake, so a 14-year-old boy has been kidnapped. Um, his mother is distraught. The father isn't in the picture. The boy is being held for ransom and uh, Blake has to try to find the kid before the deadline. And he succeeds, uh, but then another kid goes missing and the other kid looks really similar and doesn't come from a privileged background and Blake starts to wonder if the money wasn't the motive in the first place um, after all. And this in this second case, the FBI doesn't care as much because it's like not some rich kid anymore so who cares if if he goes missing but but Blake thinks he's onto some kind of conspiracy um and in Hunter uh the crime so in at, at the beginning of Hunter Blake is working he has kind of a side hustle disposing of bodies for a crime lord which is a natural fit because they're producing a lot of dead bodies he's someone who eats bodies it, it's a match made in heaven basically Perfect. it's like Uber Eats yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly but when he finds that body in the forest that he wasn't supposed to see and takes a bite out of it and then realises he's just left his DNA on it and so he therefore has to take it home to his freezer then he gets called in by the FBI who are looking for a missing man and Blake realises pretty quickly that the guy they're looking for is the guy he just just took a bite out of so he needs to a work out how the guy died b work out who if anyone killed him and c work out who he can frame <laughs> so as the uh, the fbi in particular reese thistle um who who uh, blake is in love with um she and who is not necessarily in love with him uh she's an exceptionally good cop so blake is concerned that she will follow the dead man's trail all the way to his freezer if he doesn't somehow sabotage the case but that's difficult because it means that he's in the position of lying to the woman he loves as well so yeah there's a lot of threads going on i read that you never meant for hangman to have a sequel so uh, what was it that resulted in a in a sequel being written? Was it this this character having his teeth in you and not letting go? I'm so <laughs> sorry for all the puns. I just can't help it. No, no, no. Please, <laughs> please do. They are very much to my taste. I think with... Uh, so Hangman ends on the moment of Blake being offered this body disposal job. And I just thought that would be a cool ending. It wasn't supposed to be a cliffhanger setting up a sequel. That's that's not how I, how I really work. Uh, but... When um, basically what happened was I, I wrote the book and I published it and it was a big success. And then suddenly there were some Hollywood producers interested in making a TV series. But when I talked to them on the phone, they said, so but we're going to be pitching this to networks and they're going to want to know what happens in series two if series one is a hit. So I wrote a synopsis of episode by episode of series two of uh, The Hangman Show. And The Hangman Show never got made. It still might, um, but it, it hasn't happened at this stage. But just kind of on a hunch, I showed my publisher 
the the synopsis of series two, my book publisher, and then said, hey, if this were a book, would you be interested? And they said, well, the the cannibal, the first cannibal detective novel has been surprisingly successful. Turns out there's way more of an appetite for that than we thought there would be. So yes, you can absolutely write a second one. So that's what gave me the opportunity to write Hunter which I think is a little leaner and meaner than the first one. Oh, maybe not meaner. <laughs> They're both pretty mean books. But uh, the fact that the first one was written over a period of 10 years um, and the second one was written over an incredibly focused kind of six-month window wow. means that I think the, the threads of Hunter may be tied together a little bit better. And I'm hoping that if I get the opportunity to write book three and I gather Hunter is already selling really well it's only been out for a week but the early signs look really really good so just maybe i'll have an opportunity to write a a book three that's better than them both well jack thank you so much for chatting to us about this series um it's absolutely fantastic and don't just take my word for it hangman was one of good readings top rated books last year so i encourage readers to track down a copy along with hunter i'm sure you'll devour both books with the gusto of timothy blake chewing on a serial killer (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much thanks jack Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. Hangman and Hunter by Jack Heath are both published by Alan and Unwin. Both books are available now from all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. If you're enjoying the Good Reading Podcast, tell your friends, tell your book club, or leave us a rating on your favourite podcast app. We've got plenty of interviews with fantastic authors in the pipeline that you will hear very soon. In the meantime, happy reading.